You guys catch your words in that song? Man, that is beautiful stuff. Woohoo! <clears throat> okay, before we get rolling here, I know there's a lot of baseball games that went on this weekend, football games and all that kind of stuff. Uh, don't think about your grocery list or what you're going to be doing or whether the Lions are going to be winning today. So focus on God. That's why we're here for worship. Okay? Can we, all God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right, cool. <clears throat> okay, I asked this question in the first service and didn't get a whole lot of people to respond, but I'll ask you guys. How many of you are on Facebook? Yeah, <laughs> almost everybody. It's a difference in the age, but that's cool. A few years ago, <laughs> a few years ago, Mark Zuckerberg <clears throat> was in the news because he made a $3.8 billion gain on his stocks in a two-day period. Holy moly. That meant that for those 48 hours, he made $80 million an hour, or, make it even sound more bizarre, $21,000 every second. Ooh. In the movie The Social Network, which is a story about Zuckerberg's life, there is a scene where his original partner wants to sell Facebook right after it took off and make a million dollars off the deal. Justin Timberlake told him, you shouldn't be thinking about a million dollars. You should be thinking about a billion dollars. <laughs> Currently, Zuckerberg's net worth is over $53 billion, and he's only 32 years old. Makes me feel like a piker. <laughs> he could have walked away with a million dollars at age 20, but from what we now know, it would have been a poor economic decision for him. We face important and life-changing decisions all the time, and in this teaching series on the lives of two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, we are trying to persuade you to be very careful about your life decisions. The stakes in this are very high. We're not talking about something as temporary and ultimately meaningless as millions and billions of dollars. We're talking about a life that matters for eternity, as opposed to one that is wasted on the things of this world that will not last. Remember, God offers something greater than what this world considers meaningful. However, <clears throat> it takes patience and vision and faith and delayed gratification. Most people will never get hold of it. Instead, we settle for what our life might count for here on earth when this life here on earth is just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. Since I'm retired, I got time to watch old cowboy movies. And the guy, old cowboy gave a great definition of life. He says, life is a dance between eternities. Near the end of Elijah's life, God promises to raise up a prophet after him who will be greater than he was. And Elisha is that prophet. Elisha gives us a foreshadowing of Jesus, the greatest of all prophets. Elisha also embodies a promise given to us that Jesus will use our lives for greater things. Jesus promised us in John 14 that we would do greater works than even he did because we, that's you and me, would carry the message and power of his salvation all over the world. And that's our mission. Today we're going to look at a scene from the story of Elisha that shows us what kind of person, what kind of heart, is able to receive the greater things. I know we all want to be blessed by God, but the bigger question remains, is our heart 
in a place that we can receive his blessing. I want, to, I want us to look at a story from the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. And I'm going to give you six principles about receiving the blessing of God. So let's begin with the story in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, and it should be on the, on the screen. One day Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. She said to her husband, I am sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Wouldn't that be a great reputation? Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. So the first lesson we need to learn is that we can't make God move in our lives, but we can make room for him to move. There you go. The decision to make a small room for Elisha is going to be instrumental in what happens in the rest of the story. It's not like what she did obligated God to do what he did, but it put her in the proximity of God's power. And ultimately, that should be our goal, to put ourselves in the proximity of God's power. I'm reminded of a car salesman in the Lansing area who used to say, you can write that down on the dust in your dashboard. <laughs> Put ourselves in the proximity of God's power. There's nothing that you and I can do that can force God to move in our lives. Jesus said that the movement of his spirit is mysterious, like the wind, and we can't always tell where it comes from or when it's coming. And the moment somebody comes up with a formula that manipulates God, you should know that they're misleading you. Parents can make sure that their children learn scripture and biblical principles and that the church is an integral part of their lives. But that doesn't guarantee that the child will make the decision to allow God to work in their heart. Like any child or even adult, <clears throat> there may be rebellious moments, but then because of being in the proximity of God's power, or welcoming God's presence, God's spirit begins to breathe and all the things their parents had planted into their children's heart burst into life. That's the hope of all Christian parents. And that's how faith works. We can't manipulate the presence of God. We can't make him move in our life, but we can make room for him to move. So let's move on in the story, beginning in verse 11. One day Elisha returned to Shunem. And he went up to this upper room to rest. He said to his servant, Gehazi, tell the woman from Shunem I want to speak to her. When she appeared, Elijah said to Gehazi, tell her, we appreciate the kind concern you have shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or to the commander of the army? No, she replied, my family takes good care of me. Later, Elijah asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? Gehazi replied, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is an old man. Call her back again, Elisha told him. When the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, next year, at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she cried, oh man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. But sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant, and at that time, the following year, she had a son, 
just as Elisha had said. Elisha's assistant discovers that this woman really didn't have any needs. Remember, she was rich. And if you've got a rich, you'll relate to this, if you've got a rich relative or a rich friend, you know how hard it can be to buy things for them for Christmas or their birthday. What can you buy them that they need? Well, this lady is very well off except for one thing. She has no son. Now, sons in those days were everything. They took care of you in your old age. They kept your family line going. They maintained the property and the family inheritance. A life with no son was thought of as incomplete. This woman has no son. Interestingly, she doesn't complain about it. She doesn't, she seems content, but Elisha says, next year at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. Having a child was a dream she'd given up on, but sure enough, in a year, she has a baby by her elderly husband. Now let's look at verse 18. One day when her child was older, he went out to help his father, who was working with the harvesters. Suddenly, he cried out, my head hurts, my head hurts. His father said to one of the servants, carry him home to his mother. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a dad? <laughs> Take him home to your mother. <laughs> Uh, I like how the Bible is right on. <laughs> so the servant took him home, and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. She carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and left him there. She sent a message to her husband, send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. The husband said, why go today, he asked. It's neither a new moon festival nor a Sabbath but she said, it will be all right. So she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you to. As she approached the man of God on Mount Carmel, Elisha saw her in the distance. He said to Gazi, look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to her and meet her and ask her, is everything all right with you, your husband, and your child? Yes, the woman told Gehazi, everything is fine. But when she came to the man of God at the mountain, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is deeply troubled, but the Lord has not told me what it is. Verse 28 then. Then she said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up? Then Elijah said to Gehazi, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. But the boy's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. So Elisha returned with her. Gehazi hurried on ahead and laid the staff on the child's face, but, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him the child was still dead. By the way, can I tell you quickly why I think all these stories are true? Why would somebody make this stuff up? I think these stories are true because when you're telling stories about your leaders, you want to make them sound great, don't you? Here's Elisha. He's called the man of God. He's a hero. And he tries to do this miracle three different ways, and it doesn't work. First, he's like, I've given my assistant power to do this miracle. Then, uh, lay your staff on his face, because you know that worked for Moses in the Red Sea. 
<laughs> These details are not flattering to Elijah. So why are they in there? They're in there because they happened. Or this detail we'll get to in verse 35 when Elijah raises a child. The boy sneezed seven times. Now who would write that down if you're recording history? It didn't happen. You can search every commentary there is for the symbolism, but there is none. The detail is in there just because it happened. When myths are written, they put the focus on how great the leaders are, but that's not what the Bible stories do. They just tell you what happened because their focus is not to exalt the servant, but to exalt the God who is working through the servant. Let's read that again. Their focus is not to exalt the servant of God, but to exalt the God who is working through the servant. Let's move on to verse 32. When Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on a prophet's bed. He went in alone and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. Then he laid down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm again. Elisha got up, walked back and forth across the room once, and then stretched himself out again on the, eye, on the child. This time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And here's the second point I want you to remember from the story. The blessing of God is always available in the place of our weakness. As I pointed out, this woman had everything. She's rich. Yet this miracle occurs in the one place in which she was not wealthy, the area in which she was actually poor and desperate. Did you ever notice how harshly the Bible seems to speak about rich people? In Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 53, it says, God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. In Mark 10, uh, verse 25, we read, it is easier, it's a familiar phrase, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You might think, what has God got against rich people? <laughs> is he in a class warfare? No. It's that a person's wealth very often deceives them into feeling self-sufficient. Like they can be independent of God. That's the first sin of Adam and Eve feeling like they could be independent of God. People who are rich in possessions often don't feel like they need to depend on God for their future, and so they are not overly concerned about obeying him. People who are rich in talent usually don't depend on God to work in through them because they usually feel pretty confident in what they can do. So richness almost always leads to feelings of independence. But our sense of richness in those things is just an illusion. For all of her wealth, this woman, in our story, didn't have a child. When we think we're rich enough to face the future, when we've got our retirement portfolio all set, and we have enough investments to last until we're 110, just remember, it could vanish in a second. And even if we manage to die rich, nothing we have on this earth will benefit us in eternity. Revelation 3.17 says, You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
when we recognize, confess, and acknowledge our spiritual poverty, a failure to be completely righteous, God will give us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's never our sin that keeps us from heaven. It's our false sense of righteousness. We're tempted to say, I'm rich professionally. I'm super competent, able to meet all my needs, and I'm set for life. But God says, you're a fool. For you have never laid up treasures in heaven, treasures that can't be taken away. We say, I'm rich relationally. I'm a capable spouse, a capable parent. God says, if you would only recognize, confess, and acknowledge your poverty, you could have my help. God is so full of grace, so ready to help, but our sense of independence and self-sufficiency keeps us from the richness of his mercy. It's not our weaknesses that keep us from God's blessings. It's our strength that keeps us from the power of God. The mindset of the Christian should be that I am totally dependent on God for everything. And so sometimes, like this woman, things happen in our life that we can't conquer. The death of a loved one is something we are not able to prevent. An unwanted divorce that we go through, a health scare, or an addiction we can't seem to overcome. All these experiences are windows of opportunity to let God's grace and mercy work in our life. In one of the biggest, or one of the biographies of Abraham Lincoln, it is said that the Lincoln who entered office in 1861 was vastly different than the Lincoln who died in 1865 in terms of his relationship with God. The kind of faith in God that comes through the second inaugural address and the resolve to do God's will toward the end of his presidency simply wasn't there in 1861. The difference, this biographer said, came in 1862 when his 11-year-old son, Willie, died. And for, the, and for one of the first times in his life, Lincoln felt absolutely powerless to do anything about it. But that brokenness taught him to seek a God bigger than himself. And his newfound belief in that God and his purposes gave him the courage to issue the Emancipation Proclamation because he knew God wanted it. And it was determined to, and Lincoln was determined to stand against the whole country if that's what it took. Here's the third point. I hope you remember from the story. We cannot manipulate God, but we can trust him. The story is not presented in terms of a formula, how to get a miracle. Elijah doesn't know what to do. What he does is approach a God he knows to be merciful. You may think religion teaches us to approach God based on formula. If you do this, God will do this. It's mechanical. If you do A, God is obligated to do B. But true faith is not about a formula. It's a, it is faith in a person, an all-knowing, infinitely caring person. We know God as someone we can trust, not a vending machine or a genie in a bottle that we rub the right way or put in the correct change and out pops a blessing. No, it doesn't work that way. We're sinners and we're often foolish. So half the time, what we're asking for God to do is not good. What we need is a loving Father who overrules us, not a genie in a bottle who gives us everything we want. Sometimes no answer to prayer is not a no answer. 
Sometimes God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what God knows. So trust in him. This woman trusts God, which is why when she, asked, is every, when she was asked, uh, is everything okay? She said, all is well. But she also believes in God's grace, which leads to the fourth principle. should be up on the screen. Transforming faith is a mixture of contentment and holy discontentment. After her son dies, the woman is asked repeatedly what is going on, and she responds simply, all is well. Holy moly, her son just died. But at the same time, she's like a bulldog. She's not taking no from anyone. She goes to Elijah, and Gehazi comes out and says, I'm the personal assistant to Elijah. What do you need? She says, yeah, I need to see Elisha. Gehazi says, "Uh, I'm sorry, I said I am the executive personal assistant to the man of God. What's the problem? You're the problem, pal. I'm not leaving here until I see Elisha. (laughs) Transforming faith is like that. It's a curious mixture of contentment and holy discontentment. Sometimes there is a sense deep in our soul that all is well, but at other times we have a sense that it's not so good. We know that it's not all that great with our world. We see people suffering. We see people who need to know Jesus, and it's not okay. It's not okay that many people in Central Asia or Africa are in poverty and that they suffer tremendous injustice. It's not okay that unchurched people here in America are indifferent to the gospel of Jesus Christ because they view church people as a bunch of hypocrites. How unfortunate. It's not okay that God's name is ridiculed in the media and no one has the courage to stand boldly for Jesus. It's not okay when our kids don't know Jesus and are rejecting our faith. I invite you today to be that bulldog and grab hold of Jesus and say, I won't let you go. There's a connection here. It's only when we are content with Christ that we can ever be moved by the discontentment that comes from compassion. Otherwise, we'll be too focused on our own unmet needs to be moved by the needs of the world. Complacency and contentment with the world will harden your heart. But when we are content in Christ, we can leverage our whole life to serve a dying world. We can say, in Christ, I can give up all that I have because in Christ, I already have all that I need. Quickly now, here's a fifth lesson we need to remember from the story. The blessings of God are received through persistence. This woman grabs hold of Elisha and won't let go, clinging to his garment. In so many places, the Bible teaches that we receive the blessings of God only through persistence. In our story, the woman was persistent, and who else was persistent to? Elisha. My question is this. If it was God's will to heal her son, why hadn't God already done it? Or at least, why didn't he just say yes the first time that Elisha tried? I don't know the answer to that question, but stories like this teach us that God rewards persistent seeking and positive expectations. You and I are to be like that. 
We may have children that need to know Jesus. We may have a marriage that needs improvement. We may have a habit that needs to be broken. Maybe what we need to say is, God, this is what I want to see, and I'll be back tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, I'm sticking around until you bless me. Finally, we need to remember that, number six, God gave the ultimate blessing, deliverance from death by taking our death into himself. Elisha covered the boy with himself. This is a picture of Jesus, eyes to eyes, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, a complete identification. This is how Jesus would save us. He united himself to us completely. He took upon himself our flesh, and God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God through him. He completely covered us. He suffered in our place. If God did that for us, if he loved us that much, don't you think we can trust that he cares about the rest of the stuff in our life? and that he can handle it? If he can defeat death, isn't he powerful enough for all our other problems? I started this presentation talking about the importance of decisions we make in life. May it be that you decide to say yes to God and follow Christ in everything you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the written word that serves as an illustration on how we can draw closer to you. May the lessons and insights we gain from these stories combine with the love, mercy, grace, and guidance of you, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit serve as our guideposts as we journey through our individual dance between eternities. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.